Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're heading over to Paris to catch up with Professor Simon Chadwick. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hi, Marcus. Thank you for inviting me to take part. I'm excited and looking forward to spending the next hour here talking sports, talking academics, uh, and how those two worlds come together. And of course, uh, what you've done in your nearly 30 years, uh, three decades here in the industry. But let me just sort of quickly introduce you a little more for people who might not know who you are. So uh, Professor Simon is a researcher, writer, consultant, speaker, and academic, nearly 30 years of experience in, the, in working at business schools across Europe and the world, and of course, in the world of sports and international sports. Currently, Simon is the uh, Professor of Sports and Geopolitical Economy at Schema Business School in Paris, and we'll obviously we'll talk about it. But uh, he's also the author of several books, um, just to mention maybe a few, The Business of FIFA's World Cup, The Handbook of Football Business and Management, uh, one of my favorites here, Sports Entrepreneurship Theory and Practice. And of course, uh, it's been you know featured many times all around the world in, in articles, magazines, um, as an expert. And the Times of England calls him the guru of sports management in Britain. Here we go. <laughs> so, you know, on that note, uh, Simon, let's uh, kind of have a look how you got into this, uh, the space you're in now. And, you know, we always like to start right at the beginning. So, uh, you know, give, us, give me a sense of, you know, when you... Um, you know, we're a student yourself. Um, I know you you wrote a paper on the Premier League. I think this was during your master, and then of course you did a PhD after. PhD after. So, but take us back to those days, and uh, you know, kick it off there. I'll I'll take it right back to the very beginning, and when I was one year old, my father. Actually, I say my father. It was it was technically my parents, but I suspect it was my father. Um, bought uh, a house right opposite my local football team's stadium. Um, so this was, uh, you know, in its heyday it was 42,000 people. Um, but, uh, every day, which, which, which club uh, this is, where you got to tell that, us which club some, this uh, is. Some, so my, my, my team is Middlesbrough and, and the stadium was Ayrson Park. Okay, cool. So, so, so when I, when I was a kid, I lived in Ayrson Park Road from when I was one year old. Nice. And so every, every morning when we pulled back the curtains, the first thing that we saw was a football stadium. And, and when we opened the, the front door to go to school, I had to walk past the football stadium to get to school. That's cool. And so, you know, right from the very start, um, sport was really important. And mm. I lived in a kind of family where you just watched and played sport, full right. stop. Um, and 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 that was again principally my father, but my 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 grandfather was a huge sports fan. Mm. Um, you know, my my great grandfather was a huge sports fan uh, he was from leeds so there was always a bit of tension in the family because he was a leeds united fan whereas we were all uh, middlesbrough fans right. but uh, i i guess i started off life as, as somebody who um watched lots of sport played lots of sport talks about talked about lots of sport and then i went away to university and uh, my my first degree was economics and i i really enjoyed my economics degree uh, i i i think that i Studied and thought about and talked about and wrote about lots of interesting things, you know, like transport and houses and this kind of thing. But it never occurred to me at that point that, you know, number one, I, you, you could talk about sport in such a way or write about sport in such a way. 
And it certainly never occurred to me that, that what somebody like me would do at, you know, kind of 21 years old is, we, you know, that I would look for a job in sport. Right. And it was only really um, much later on. I, I, I obviously, I, I continued to watch sport. I continued to play sport. I continued to think about it. But it was only much later on when I got my first university job in the mid-90s and I shared my office with a guy who ultimately it turned out to have been a, a former um, Aston Villa player um, and he'd played at, you know, kind of under-20s level for the England national team. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally, when he retired, he went to to coach the under-19s team in Saudi Arabia, which uh, is an interesting side detail. But I always remember sharing an office with this guy, and, and he he, uh, he turned to me in my first university, he turned to me in this office, and he said, uh, should, should we write a paper on uh, on sport? And, and yeah, okay. So that's what I did. Um, and uh, together we... we wrote something on the Premier League, which we uh, delivered at an, acad- an academic conference in France mm-hmm. back in the mid-90s. And, and you know, as people say, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I want to go back one minute one for one, one question. What, what was, how old were you when you attended your first uh, Middlesbrough match? Do you vaguely remember? Or you uh, well, they, they, so so uh, there are two occasions when this happened. So the first occasion is 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 when I was six years old. They right. used to open the gate. They used to open the gates up. You know, keep in mind the, the the games would would start at about three o'clock in the afternoon, and by you know maybe four fifteen when you were in the second half, people you know maybe needed to to leave early. So they started to open the gates up at uh, that okay. time. So I remember playing in the street with my friends and and someone saying, "Let's go in and look." So I so. <laughs> I, I, so I remember that you know we 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 snuck in we we sneaked nice. into the game and and yeah. but if you're talking about actually going and and going with someone and and sitting down or standing up and and kind of watching the full 90 minutes it was when I was seven years old and, and my father took me still really really awesome I love it great great start so so here we are so we, you wrote a, you, you created a paper there for on the Premier League and uh, you know now let's uh, let's talk a bit about your PhD because again you you uh, I think your thesis was on football shirts sponsorship and the impact I guess around it and we're now in early 2000 here um, just just share a little bit about it um, you know what was the, what was it all about and how you then obviously got into that academic you know side of it I mean I, I, I think that uh, you know kind of prior to the mid 90s I was uh, I I worked a little bit in 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 the brewing industry but not for very long um, I decided to go and train as a teacher uh, and subsequent to that, I, I then went to to work in my first university in, in Coventry, Coventry University. Um, this is where I wrote about the Premier League with with the former player that I mentioned. He was also an academic at the university, and we were we we wrote about the Premier League in terms of kind of sponsorships and brands and fan engagement and and, and broadcasting rights and. It was really interesting the first uh, event that we delivered this paper at this academic conference because I think fifty percent of the audience, you know, kind of the response was, you know, what the hell are you talking about? Right. You, know, you know, what is this all about, and why are you talking about these kinds of things? Um, and 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 then the other fifty percent of the audience, it was almost as though we performed alchemy. You know, they could they, could, they couldn't quite understand. You know, they they couldn't get their head round heads around this kind of this this wonder that we were we were discussing um so it was it was a little bit of a i i guess a kind of uh, uncertain start because we were not sure 
whether people were, certainly the academic market, if we put it that way, were receptive to the kinds of ideas that we were um, sharing. But as, as time went on through the 90s towards the late 90s, you know, very clearly and, and the Premier League... So just to interject for a second, if I, mm. somehow if I remember correctly, the, league, the Premier League as it is now, right, as a sort of entity we all recognise now, was only launched around that time, right? So 96, was it? 1992. And, 92, and, um, OK, so just slightly before. All right, got it, OK. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean that's a great observation, Marcus, because um, I remember reading around 1990, 1991, there was something called The Blueprint for the F Future of Football was published by the English FA. Right. And, uh, and there's a very clear message inside The Blueprint for the Future of Football, which is basically, you know, English football could make more money by establishing the Premier League. And, and so... Right. In those terms, I guess the Premier League passes the test. It was set up to make money, and it's made money, you know, so job done. Well, but money, so, yes. so, yeah, so, so, but certainly as we got towards the end of the 90s, been writing more about um, the business of sport for an academic audience. Um, and in, in the late 1990s, I enrolled to, to study, as you say, for a PhD, which um, was at the University of Leeds. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it was it was it was a study about football football shirt sponsorship and why do sponsors do it? Why do clubs do it? Uh, and what what are there the kind of key ingredients in terms of establishing successful sports sponsorships? And obviously, at that time, it was a very different sponsorship environment. You know, I remember some of the shirt sponsors were. You know, for instance, there was a trade union was a shirt sponsor. There was a local, a, lo a local government office was a was a, a shirt sponsor. You know, obviously alongside beers and financial services products and so forth. Yeah. But what uh, was the numbers? Do you remember any of sort of you know what was sort of the shirt size deals at the time when you guys were doing this the research? You you you're talking about very small deals in some cases. Yeah, I, I, I think. Pounds you know, or Less well, yeah, more. I mean, it, it was less than ten million pounds, and 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 I think okay. in in some cases, you know, certainly as you move, because the 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 research um, didn't just focus on the Premier League; it went all the way down the the professional league structure. Okay. So 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 I looked at all ninety two clubs, and right. and and in some cases there were there were shirt sponsorship deals that were in kind deals. So right. you know they 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 struck an arrangement somehow where you know they get free shirts or they they get food and beverage services in inside the stadium or whatever it might be, you know, in return for the name on the shirt. So yeah. um, it, it was a very different environment, but but you know, obviously what it started to do, because I didn't just talk to the football clubs themselves, um, I also spent time with with sponsors. Um, you know, I, I spent time with people at Carlsberg, for instance, at, at organisations like Betfair, mm -hmm. Um you know, essentially interviewing them and, and asking them, you know, why did you do this? What are you hoping to get out of it? What do you think are the best ways to manage such relationships? And so okay. out of that, by by the early 2000s, came, came my PhD thesis. Now, I'll give you my thesis, which didn't get me a PhD, but uh, this is how I explain having sold these kind of sponsorship, obviously. You know, the crest, right, which is, you know, the club's crest, sits on the left side of the jersey, right, in pretty much every, mm. every sport I can think of, which is obviously mm. just above the heart, right? Mm. And then the logo, obviously, with the sponsor sits right below. So my simple explanation of any sponsor I've ever been, this is the closest thing you get to the heart of the fan. Do you like that? Mm. Yeah, 
Absolutely, well done. You should uh, you should copyright that one and share it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I you know I, I must have said it a hundred times probably in my life, but a thousand. And I think I I completely believe that's true. You know, there is you know this is obviously what the fan is all about, right? He's about that crest there, that 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 symbol of which he recognizes as uh, you know what he loves and is close to mm. his heart. And if the minute mm. you put that logo near to it, wherever that maybe is, but you know especially when it's right under it. Um, to me, that is the connecting, right? And you know, I've seen studies, and I don't know whether that was part of, of what you did as well. Is that the fan, the the part which is the most interesting? I feel I, I always read is not so much the conscious element of okay, this is now our sponsor, so you know, and I like this club, so therefore I should support it. But is the subconsciousness to to the message that the fan literally doesn't actually even know how he's getting now stimulated in his brain to like that company because. It, that is the company which is supporting his his club, right, or her club. Um, yeah, and and there were some interesting elements to to my study. I mean, in in one particular case, it was Sheffield United. So, Sheffield United actually had a um, a company called Desson mm-hmm. uh, as their shirt sponsor, and and this was a um, a Chinese fruit powder manufacturer. And what 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 this means is is is. Um, you know, this company would sell powders to, for example, supermarket chains across the world, and and right. you add water to the fruit powder, and you've got fruit juice. Right. So and, nobody um, know what they and, do, right? Yeah. yeah, and so nobody really knows what they're doing. But but what was really interesting, and and when I spoke to the commercial team at, at Sheffield, and also spoke to some fans too, they really uh, they really liked what seemed at the time like a very exotic logo with with Chinese characters underneath it that nobody really knew, and and <laughs> and and. So Subsequently, when when that deal ended, and and I think Sheffield, if I recall correctly, played without a, a logo on its shirt for some time, is the fans were really quite upset about the fact that the, there wasn't a, lo- a sponsor's logo on there on the mm. shirt. And so I think you know it 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 is re- really interesting because obviously in England sponsorship logos weren't allowed on shirts until quite late 1978. All right. Um, and there was some resentment towards them, and I guess even now there probably is some resentment, particularly gambling brands. But it sure. it is amazing how they've, they've they've kind of burrowed their you know sponsor logos and sponsors have burrowed their ways into into the consciousness of of fans Absolutely. and so we and so we now do accept the the names and logos and as I, say, I think in certain cases we even we even as fans celebrate some of those logos yeah for sure for sure now let's uh, let's go a bit deeper here into you know your space is not just football although football i think you have done a lot of things and, and i want to talk a bit more about it but i believe you also been you know motorsports and cycling and certain other sports right you've a have an interest in b believe you've done work in these areas right so yeah i mean i my my great secret is that when i was uh when i was younger there was a time when i actually fell out of uh fell out of love with football and and really fell in love with uh with with motorsport and not just for, with Formula One, but but again, right down to you know, for example, Formula Ford and Formula Renault. You know, really kind okay. of rough, rainy club days at windswept circuits, watching you know crazy people race around and crash a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> and so uh, I used to uh, I used to be a huge motorsport fan, and and I think again, you know, I mentioned my father already. He was uh, he was a very very clean keen cyclist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I guess back in the days when cycling was not especially popular in Great Britain. But uh, you know, again, this this resulted in me you know, going to watch cyclocross. You know, most British people 
typically haven't watched cyclocross, but as a kid, my my father would take me to muddy fields to watch cyclocross and we'd go to velodrome. So so cycling has also been a a kind of something of a a secret passion of mine as well. Interesting. Now let's go into sort of the, you know, not just the academic side so much, but, uh, you know, I'd love to touch a bit on the work you've done with clubs and, and, you know, leaks, et cetera, around the world. So let's maybe just pick a sum of, of your early part of your career after you finish your PhD there. Um, I, I recall you mentioned before that, you know, you did some work with Barcelona um, and some of the characters there, of course, have now well known um, and also moved on into other clubs. So just share a bit about maybe let's start there with Barcelona and then maybe we talk a bit about Shenwick, et cetera. Yeah, so I, um, as, as I was finishing my PhD uh, in the early 2000s, I, I guess the simple thing to say is the world was changing, right? Um, and I found myself in classrooms uh, very often with, with large numbers of, of students who weren't British. Um, they weren't even European. In, in many cases, they were from, uh, from South Asia, from, from East Asia. And what I could, what struck me about talking to them in, in my classes was that you know, how, how passionate they they were about um about sport and about football in particular and and so this ultimately resulted in me working together with uh, with master students and and then subsequently subsequently with PhD students mm-hmm. looking at fans in places like China South Korea Japan and elsewhere and trying to understand you know number one their fandom in terms of their their own country so you know which which teams they've they've followed in in China for example and why right. but also why why they were engaged with overseas teams as well so you know, why there are you know Manchester United fans in Beijing or why there are Bayern Munich fans in Tokyo and um you know we we're talking about you know really quite big data sets you know Talking to in one particular case, we 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 surveyed twelve thousand Chinese fans um, about their their you know tastes and preferences and and, and the, the the things that they buy in relation to, to European football clubs and so. And what is we, it? I mean, out of that study, just to state that for a second, uh, what what is it? If you summarize it uh, from that study, what makes a Chinese fan pick a club? Uh, you know, in the UK or I'm from Germany, it's obvious, right? It's mostly the city you grew up in, and you know, or your father's uh, club is in the, in that sense, right? If there are more than one club in a city, but you know, how does a Chinese fan, based on the research you guys did, how did they pick it? Really, is it just who wins the Champions League, and therefore everyone talks about it, or how do how do people pick it? I, I guess a lot, lots of reasons. So um, one, one, so 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 one of the things that we observed, and, and keeping in mind this is in kind of mid to late two thousands. Sure. We we know we 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 noticed, for instance, uh, in China there were lots of Serie A fans. Okay. Um, and and when when we started to dig deeper, very often um, we found that there was a, a an older family member. Who during the the nineteen eighties, you know, obviously was younger, but during the nineteen eighties, as you may know, Marcus, um, Serie A was the first um, European league 
that had its games broadcast live in China. And, and okay. so during this this during this communist period when you know there was not a lot else available, you know, lots of people therefore became Serie A fans and they became right. Juve fans and Inter Milan fans and AC Milan fans. And of course by by the time you fast forward to two thousands, these these young people from the nineteen eighties have got married, they've got kids. Right. And what they were what they were doing is just like you and me, Marcus, they were they, they were saying to their kids, you will support Inter Milan and you will support Juventus. Sure. So you know I, I think that kind of family impact influence was was there but if, if if you're thousands of miles away in china and um you can pick any european football team su- to support you know maybe you don't select middlesbrough um given its you know its 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 image and its reputation and its its long history of underachievement instead what you do is you think ah you know, mid two thousands, United they're they're winning. You know, they're winning the league. They're qualifying for the Champions League. They've won the Champions League. You know, yeah. let's be a United fan. So I think it's 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 a in some ways it's a lifestyle choice, an entertainment choice. Um, it's a form of conspicuous consumption. Um, as uh, as as some of the listeners may know, there is this notion of burging psychological phenomenon of burging which is basking in reflected glory so walking walking down the main street in beijing if you're wearing a manchester united shirt you're gonna look pretty pretty good if you're walking down the main street of in beijing wearing a middlesbrough shirt maybe you won't look (laughs) maybe maybe you won't look you'll stick out a bit uh, more that's for sure yeah absolutely but uh but obviously you know united and bayern and and, uh, real madrid and barcelona so off the back of this what we started to find was was clubs were really interested because I think there was this kind of post two thousand two um, interest in 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 China in particular, but certainly South Korea and Japan following the World the Cup, World Cup. Yep. and uh, and and clubs wanted to know more and 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 I guess back in the day uh, there wasn't a you know, there wasn't an industry of consultants or advisors or researchers who could tell you, you know, what was happening in downtown Beijing. You know, it, it was people like me doing academic research. And so I, 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 you know, I, for instance, went out to Barcelona, met with their international team, um, talked to them about, about the research that we've been doing, provided some insights. And, and this subsequently led to the vice president, uh, for, uh, vice president and, and director of finance for Barcelona at the time, um, Fran Soriano, eventually coming to the university where I was working, the University of London, mm-hmm. to give a to give a, a, a talk to students and, and invited others. Um, I kept his slides that day. Um, I've still got them. He knows that. I've, I wrote to him and I said, look, I've still got your slides. Um, but in, in his presentation, and, and again, it goes back to what I said earlier about kind of blowing the minds of people and really kind of either completely switching them off or completely switching them on. But that day, Ferran Soriano, Soriano, I think really, you know, in one sense, antagonized people, but but in other ways, opened the minds of some people to to the new possibilities of of. 21st century sport. Hmm. He talked about you know running a football club like Disney and and you know, thinking about it in terms of franchises, um, having different franchise opportunities across the world, okay. uh, merchandising. Um, it was you know, as I said, this was incredible. I recorded it as well. I've I've got it on DVD too. I've not just got his slides. I've got it on DVD too. Nice. Um, but of course, Ferran Soriano, as we now know, is is the the chief executive of City Football Group. Right. 
And so many of the things that he talked about back in 2005, 2006, that I first became aware of, you know, you fast forward to now and, and obviously he's been able to do a lot of those Together. things. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a great, I love that. It's a great story. And, and I've heard this, sort, let's say in a sense, I heard the story before, obviously how he had the similar vision already at Barcelona, but obviously couldn't mm-hmm. see implemented and now you know you look at city football and that's really what it is right and and clearly like you just described it you were right there at that start that's that's very cool you know and and again yeah a bit like to answer a little more of what we were talking about earlier how fans in asia really get there is you're right um the the media side of it the the tv distribution is has always been a huge part uh indonesia is another one of those countries where the syria has done did still doing well and always was has a strong following again because it was uh on one of the big broadcasters there. Uh, Bundesliga does quite well in, in China because for years it was free on CCTV versus the Premier League was already sold on some pay TV platform. So it, you know, but clearly we all know the story now and that is the Premier League in my view has was always the one who was, let's call it the most aggressive in, in, a, in a positive way coming into Asia with the with with for friendly matches um you know none of the other leagues clubs have you know come anywhere close to it for the last 20 years or beyond I've been here uh, but the you know the Premier League clubs have been here and cultivating that following and and you know building that connection with the fan and I think that's another huge component of course while the Premier League is as big as it is now out here and on the back of it, you know, generates the, the huge returns there, of course. So have you ever looked at that a bit, the, how these tours impact, um, you know, the you know sharing the gospel around the world? I mentioned a little earlier, Marcus, uh, about um, one piece of research that I was involved in, which uh, entailed serving 12,000 Chinese football fans. That was specifically at a Manchester United tour game in Beijing back in 2005. Okay. And uh, there will be some people out there in the world, I'm sure, who will listen to this and know. But what what actually happened during that game was United went to play a tour match in, in uh, or a series of tour matches in China, but essentially they, they played a second 11. So the big, 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 big stars of the club very often didn't turn out mm. in the starting 11. Right. And the and the Chinese fans really were they were very very unhappy about right. this yeah. because of course their engagement was very often based upon identification with a with a star player or with a series of star players, yes. and so they somehow felt betrayed and 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 for me the lesson of of this was that fans obviously engage with a club for particular reasons. And and you can't then renege on that promise, you know, if you like a brand promise by yes. bringing, you know, by bringing a, br- a bunch of eighteen-year-olds to play in your starting eleven, yep. and and so in terms of you know moving forward, what that all meant, and 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 I'm thinking particularly here when four or five years ago, I think Chelsea uh, played in in California, and uh, and and what I recall about that particular. Um, tour to California or tour to the United States and then that visit to California is is Chelsea sent their players out to their to to a downtown um retail outlet for a signing session. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of immediacy, you know, you 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 you, you can touch and feel the uh, the players. I guess we could call the the, the players their touch and feel goods if you like is is yep. Seeing them online, or you know, watching them on TV, or you know, having a magazine in which you can look at pictures of them is one thing. Yes. But ultimately, ultimately, they are, they are touch and feel 
commodities and and so fans do need to to see them and to touch them and be with them and to see them perform and and so the lesson as i say when you go on tour to china or japan or wherever else it is that you might go is don't take a group of second 11 players you've got to take your very very best players with you yeah, and I can echo this. I mean, we just had, you know, I, I was involved in bringing Liverpool and Man United to Bangkok, you know, last summer um, here this year. Um, and historically, as promo, as a promoter, and I wasn't the promoter, but I was the one who broke up the deal here, um, you always try to protect yourself and you, you try to put a clause in which says you have to bring, you know, so and so and so and so. And of course, the clubs do the opposite, right? They're pushing back and saying, look, we just can't do that. Um, but the answer from both clubs actually was, look, you know, we have a brand reputation to protect and for us not to show up with our top players unless there is a very good reason as the player is injured or something else, of course, happens why he might not be on the tour. He said, we can't afford it so more because you don't need a clause. Trust me, you know, our reputation is for us more important. Um, and I thought that was a really good way to think of it um, and, and then sort of echoes a bit what you said. I think the clubs in the in the 20 years ago, Probably didn't think that way and thought, okay, look, we're still Man United and we'll send a bunch of whatever kids out there and it'd be all fine. And I think they all learned their lessons very quickly. That exactly doesn't work. You need to bring the stars. We didn't have Ronaldo here, but we all know the saga around that, what happened. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you could somewhat argue that wasn't necessarily the club's fault here. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's definitely the case. And and I hopefully most clubs in the world um, have figured that out by now. and, And of course, you know, rock up with these with the top guys here. Now let let's move on a little bit <clears throat> into another direction here. So, the roles you had, you know, as as we touched on last time, you 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 did uh, do some royal some work. Then I think also with the Chinese FA, the Russian FA, uh, you know, a couple of sort of uh, groups in the Middle East, etc. Let's let's touch on that a little bit uh, because again, you know, that takes you a bit away from again what you're doing just as an academic, but uh, you know, providing I guess expertise on the ground in, in other parts of the world, right? And your your focus as you like to call it, your Eurasian focus. So yeah, I, I obviously you've got to keep in mind that that that, that I think the world Ten years ago was a very different place to uh, to how it is now, and 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 certainly if you look at um, you know the work, for example, that I I did in Russia, this was you know, at a time when Putin was very much seen as an ally of uh, of, of 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 the West, right. you know, particularly in fighting, uh, particularly in terms of fighting the war on terror, and and so it was. It wasn't frowned upon. It wasn't frowned upon to be there. It was much sure. easier to get there, and 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 it was seen as though you were you were making a contribution to almost to the reformation of a of a country like Russia. But you know beyond beyond the 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 kind of current controversies and 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 the reasons for 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 uh, for going to such places, you know, I, I've got a very simple philosophy, which is try not to judge until you've actually been and done something, um, and and so. You know, certainly in terms of, of going to China for the first time, uh, this I, I think this really, in many ways, it changed my life. It changed my outlook. And, and you know, then traveling to the Gulf region, it definitely changed my life and changed my outlook. And, and subsequently, you know, being in Russia, one of the things that, that struck me about Russia is, is, is I think how chaotic it, it, it was, and, and you know, it was a very, it was a very challenging environment in what, which to what, what work. What year was it? Just to give us. So this uh, the, the first time I, I, I was in Russia was was kind of 2012, 2013, so not right. too long before the uh, the Sochi Games. Right. But I, I, I think what this opened me opened my mind up 
to was the fact that you know not everybody looked like me and sounded like me and made decisions in the same way as me and and so um it did lead me to think about the ways in which we we obviously stage sport we we deliver it and the way, way in which people consume sport and and as we now know particularly in 2022 with with the world cup impending but also the likes of saudi arabia are investing very very heavily in in um in sport i think what i've been able to do is to establish a, a kind of if i call it this a first mover advantage in terms of understanding these countries and, and i think to a certain extent too with russia because you know, we go back to the early part of 2022 and a lot of people seem to have been taken completely off guard by what happened in Ukraine. And, and we saw, for example, with UEFA and the Champions League, the Gazprom sponsorships. You know, in Formula One, we had the Haas team that, that, that yep. suffered as a, as a consequence of, of its relationship with Russia. And yet, you know, for, for, for you know, several years, it's, it's been apparent to me, at least having spent time in Russia, what was happening. Um, and, and, and part of my writing over the last 10 years has, has been talking about, you know, kind of motives for the likes of Russia, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, China, investing in sport. But I, I guess, I guess, you know, as an individual, I, I, I now feel I have a much more um, complex, nuanced, and balanced view of the world. Mm. But I, I guess more importantly, in terms of when I stand in front of classrooms of 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 people who want to become better leaders, better managers, better decision makers in sport, I am now in a position that I wasn't in 20 years ago to be able to say, okay, so here are the things that you need to think about. So for instance, I was in a um, a classroom very recently in Germany with a, a group of executive education students, uh, many of them already working in the sport industry. And and as I say, what we're able to do is to discuss and to highlight and think about ways of working within some of the challenges that you face in countries like Qatar. And, and so bottom line, Rather than sitting in my office, you know, contemplating the world, I do like to try and get out and about and to understand and to see and to experience and to speak to people. And I guess ultimately, Marcus, you know, the one thing that I would say is all over the world, no matter where you are, I've met incredibly nice, warm, hospitable, friendly people who, you know, in many cases, they're just trying to make their way through life like the rest of us. Um but one of the things I hope that I can do is, is no matter where I am in the world, you know, I, I've, I've taught in Brazil, I've taught in, taught in Japan, I've taught in Denmark, in Norway, you know, I've, I've taught all over the world. Is, is, is just hopefully, I hope, is to bring just a little bit more understanding of, of others, and, and maybe a little bit more respect, and I hope just a little bit more, more tolerance for one another. But as I say, in terms of just helping people to become better leaders, better managers, better decision makers in terms of their understanding of the world. You know, that, that's that's kind of part of my role, I guess, as an educationalist. Absolutely. Now, let's talk Qatar Supreme Committee. Uh, I believe you were a consultant to them um, for several years, um, as early as 2012 here, I believe. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about it. Exact, you know, we, we woke up literally uh, a week away now. Um, and by the time we uh, this podcast will go out, uh, we'll probably be right in the middle of it, uh, maybe already at the end of it. Um, let's, you know, a, a, share a little bit what you were doing. And then B, and I want maybe that's how we started, because obviously both Russia and Qatar 
beat the bits of England and the US, I believe, at that time. Um, so now being British, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you would have preferred to have that walk up at your home turf. Um, you know, give me a sense um, of your sentiment on it and, and of course then a bit about what exactly you were doing. So if we go back to 2009, to early 2010, which is the first time I ever visited Qatar, um, it was very clear that, that something big was was already happening. Uh, in fact, if you go back to 2006, uh, I think in 2006, the Aspire Sport Academy had first opened up in Qatar and, yeah. and it was seeing adverts in world soccer. I'm an avid, avid reader of world soccer and, and seeing adverts for Aspire and, and thinking, what is that? Mm-hmm. Football, yeah, ca- yeah, that. football Qatar, Aspire, 2006. What's this all about? So I'd, I'd been I'd been observing Qatar for some time. And, and when I when I went there, as I say, I, I was... I was somewhat taken aback um, because the country very clearly was growing rapidly. Um, they were investing in sport. I, I wasn't particularly aware at that point of you know, what it, what being Qatari meant or what the Qatari government was really trying to do or what some of the issues are around migrant workers were. Um, one of the my abiding memories of of Qatar at that very early stage is is just how many uh, and and they always used to be in old American school buses. You used to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of migrant workers in old American school buses, and and I, I never really understood about the labor market in Qatar, about some of the issues around the treatment of migrant workers. But you know, obviously, as as the more I went back and 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 the more that I spoke to people, um, the more I understood what was taking place in, in Qatar. But I think at one stage, there was a very strong emphasis upon the World Cup providing a, an educational legacy, not just for Qatar, but for the MENA region more generally, the Middle East and North Africa. So I was um, I initially worked with the uh, with with the World Cup organizers on a, on a legacy project, okay. which which was essentially about ensuring the delivery of education and research that would help to improve the standard of leadership, decision-making, management within sport and events, as I say, not just in Qatar, but across the Middle East and North Africa more generally. Right. All right. That's really cool. Um, And so now that, you know, again, you know, you've obviously followed, A, you were in a a sense directly involved, um, and now you've obviously been following what's going on. So let's just stick to the walk-up for a minute here. Um, and you touched on it, of course, which is the topic of every, in everyone's uh, what you know the what happened to migrant workers, um, and you know I think when we spoke about it last time, you know we both have a certain opinion about it. Um, it's you know every single death is is, is sad and and, and tragic, um, but we also I think both of us, probably, I think to some degree if I paraphrase it correctly here is we also know this wasn't all linked to the World Cup, right? There's you know. You know, hundreds of other projects going on, you know, from, you know, shopping malls to whatever, you know, residential buildings coming up, which have absolutely nothing to do with the World Cup, which, you know, are part of this. And, and unfortunately, it's all zeroed always into that it's all World Cup, World Cup, which isn't the case anyway, right? That doesn't make any death better. But, uh, you know, what, what's your thought on that? And if I say from the outset, um, my, uh, my, my grandfather was a steel worker who's a, a, a manual laborer in the local steel works, you know, kind of blue collar working class guy he died at work mm. and uh i think that his employer could have done more much more to protect him at work 
And so for, for anybody uh, anybody in Qatar or anywhere else in the world who, who suffered uh, the loss of a relative at work, you know, I do understand. And, and my, my position is very, very simple on this, which is nobody should go to work and die. Nobody. Yeah, but I, but, but I, I, I think that you know, whilst there have been issues in Qatar, there have been issues in Qatar, and, and these are, are well-reported, well-documented now, um, Situations like this are, are never entirely clear in the way that people imagine, and 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 as you say, you know, we're right to to make this distinction between those workers who have died on World Cup related projects and those workers elsewhere. Um, you know, clearly in terms of FIFA and the World Cup organisers, there is a particular set of issues. I think there is another set of issues related to how Qatar in general treats migrant workers and you know, how it gathers statistics about worker deaths. And I think that's a very important point because one of the things that I've learned about Qatar is its statistical data collection and, and analysis is is not particularly well developed and, and needs to improve. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly there have been some developments there has been some progress in Qatar but there needs to be more and one of the big challenges for not just for the Qataris themselves but I think for all of us is once once the circus leaves town you know do we keep the spotlight on some of these issues right. but I think we do we we do need to set this in a broader context and we could keep broadening this context but I'll, I'll try to restrict it is you know many of us we, you know we we do enjoy a holiday in Dubai and we do like going and shopping the, the the mall of Dubai and, and in other shopping malls and you know those beach holidays that we all know about and flying on Emirates and the Emirates Airlines sponsorships. Um, very few of us actually question Dubai. We, we, very few of us actually question that sports sponsorship program. And, and yet a lot of the issues around the Qatar World Cup that we're now talking about are, are equally as applicable or were equally as applicable Yes. During Dubai, and 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 so I think rather than Qatar falling victim to 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 the you know the the, the the kind of concerns of the world, we do actually need to be sensible about what's happening, not just in the Gulf region, but across the world in 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 in, in its entirety. And we can and, blame and the British a little bit, right? I think well, you yeah, spoke yeah, about yeah, uh, yeah. the kafala hmm. system, which you explained to me last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know the Kavala system that exists in in Qatar in the current in its current form. You know the British introduced this. I think we've also got to look at you know the, the colonial powers of Europe a right. hundred years ago and how they used sport and and so again I think. I, I'm I'm not here to sit to take side. I'm not even here to take the side of my own country and you know, the country I was born and brought up in. What I'm here to do is you know I I, I hope and and I always try to induce discussions, sensible discussions about things that are that are balanced and, and open and based on evidence. Um, because I think, you know, we, we're all here together on the planet at the same time. We, you know, we've got to try and make a, a, a decent life together. And you know, if we can address the issues of worker deaths, then absolutely, I'm 100%, 100% behind that. Um, yeah. But as I say, I think I think sometimes the the debate is a, is somewhat skewed and, and and unhelpfully so. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's never quite as black and white as as certain groups trying to make it. Right, I think that's another way to look mm -hmm. at it. Uh, but and maybe while we have this sort of let's call it the controversial side of of the sports there, uh, let's stick to that for a minute. You know, and and the other one which you know what people call sports washing, right? Um, where whether it's a you know sovereign nation investing in a football club, again. Qatar obviously owns PSG. You know Saudi recently bought uh, Newcastle. Um, you know New again City is owned by a group out of uh, Abu Dhabi, etc. And and so on. Um, 
you know, and then, you know, Saudi have now, of course, spending huge money in golf with the LIV. What's your, let's call it from an academic point of view again, what, what's your thought on that? How, how would you look at this and how do you talk about it in the classroom? Well, I, as, as with everything, 360 degree view, uh, seen from as many different angles as possible, trying to understand um, the diversity of, of standpoints and opinions on on particular matters. You know, we can be in no doubt whatsoever across the entire history of sport that being associated with sport carries with it or brings with it um, image and reputational benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it just so happens that in our 21st century, highly geopoliticized incarnation of sport that some amongst us label what the likes of Saudi Arabia and others are doing as sport washing. And, and sport washing in these terms is you know, essentially trying to distract attention. So instead of seeing the bad stuff about countries, you know, instead, you know, it, it's used so that we see the good stuff. But again, I take you back to you know, colonial times and, and the way in which the British used cricket, football, rugby around the world. You know, I, I guess if if the British Empire was still in in full full flight now, and it was using football, cricket, uh, rugby in the same way, it would be termed sport washing because the British very clearly were trying to pacify and placate and distract in in, in the context of the, some of the, the kind of political challenges that uh, they faced okay, around okay. the world. Um, so, 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 so history, so, yeah, I, I, history repeats itself in a sense, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 and you might, argue, you might argue that in terms of national development, um, You know, some of the issues now being faced by Saudi Arabia and Qatar you know, were being faced by Britain, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. So, you know, I, I think there is a, an interesting debate there potentially around that. But, you know, it I think in Saudi Arabia, Qatar and elsewhere, it is not it is not just about image and reputation. It, it is about deploying sport for policy purposes. And notice I use the word deploy for policy purposes because... You know, I, I guess if you look at the success of California, which is built on Hollywood and the entertainment industry, but also on 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 the digital economy and you know, like Facebook and others. And, and so just as we've seen elsewhere in the world, geographic spaces, be it cities, states, countries um, developing on the on the basis of an investment in other forms of industrial activity. So I think that, that that's what we're now seeing in places like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. You know, there, there, there's money to be made. There are jobs to be created. There are exports to be uh, uh, to be delivered as a consequence of being successful or, or prominent members of the global sporting community. At the same time, there are political benefits too. And, and you know, certainly in terms of Qatar, I guess prior to the World Cup, um, most of us maybe didn't even know where Qatar was. You know, there may still right. there may still be some people out there in the world who don't know where Qatar is. And but certainly, I'll go back to 2010, uh, before the World Cup, Cup bid. Most of us would have had some difficulty saying, "Well, this is who the Qataris are. This is what the country stands for. Absolutely. This is what this is what they do. Um, this is how they live their lives." And and so, sport in in political terms, in those political terms, you know, we now know, you know much more about who the Qataris are, you know, what they stand for. You know, we know about Paris Saint Germain. We know about the World Cup. So, I think there is a political dimension there too. Yeah, and, and I, the country I lived in for a very large part of my life, Malaysia, um, when I first went there, and I would tell friends where where I live 
they would like, where's Malaysia, right? And then you say oh, next to Singapore. Ah, okay. Then they sort of got a sense. Then Malaysia and I started to host the uh, Formula One race and obviously was a host city for almost 20 years. Um, and very shortly, and I would say within a reasonably short period of time, it, you didn't have to explain it anymore, right? So and whether it is F1, of course, or these huge me mega events, the World Cups, the Olympics of the world, um, they can do this, right? And they do it very well for countries to put them on the map, to expose them. If you look at Singapore, what, what they did with the F1 race, right? It's, you know, people, yes, maybe knew about Singapore, but now you watch them on TV, lit up like a Christmas tree at night. It looks, the city looks amazing, that you're going, I might want to go there and have a look, right? Myself is is obvious, right? So and I and I do, you know, so is it sports washing or is it yeah, is it, you know, simple marketing, PR and other terms, uh, which anyone uses anyway, right? And using it using sports for it in the right or wrong way. And then, like I said, we, we all know that yes, there are reasons why uh, people are uh, have a negative connotation to it, but I do think it's just what it is, right? And and you know, sports benefits, of course, on the back of it, and taking taking those sports around the world. So, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and as, you, as you know, as you know, Marcus, with great brands, great great brands don't have to explain who they are and what they do. Yeah. You know, people instinctively know, and you know, whether we're talking about you know training shoes or football boots or we're talking about you know paris fashion you know particular particular brands particular names carry with them associations in in people's minds that lead people to behave in particular ways and and you know, what we're now living in the era of is this notion of nation branding and i think sport right. for qatar sport for um for saudi arabia sport for great britain is an important part of the nation brand. You know, we don't need, whenever I go around the world, I always sit in the front seat of a taxi and, and talk to the taxi driver about their favourite Premier League team. Is, is You don't need to explain the English Premier League. It's a great brand. People instinctively know what it's all about. And so you know, I, I, I guess in those terms, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, China... Uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, they want uh, want a piece of the action too, and yeah, and obviously their inv their investments in sport are part of getting that piece of action. Yeah. No, no, I like that. Uh, yeah, nation building is definitely an, it's it's the right term, and uh, and you see it all over the world, right? And and if everyone has a different way of of using it in a sense, uh, and because I the, the biggest powers in the world, and it goes not just the nations, it's cities, right? The biggest cities yeah. in the world are trying to be the host of things. And now I, I want to talk a bit about China. Uh, another giant in this whole piece of puzzle, um, obviously for a very long time, very, uh, again, aggressive in promoting themselves in sports with the Olympics, obviously, right? 2008 was the sort of, you know, shining example, the, you know, how China arrived on the world stage. Obviously, the most recent uh, Olympic Winter Olympics was probably not quite at the same level, uh, or nowhere near at the, at the level, um, also COVID-related um, and now you have things which, to some degree, surprised me. Um, they were supposed to host the Asian Football Confederation, which is the Asia Cup, which is like the Euro for this part of the world here, uh, next year. Uh, and they, a few months back, gave it up um, as the host country. And now it will be in Qatar, interesting enough, which again, maybe not everyone even knows that. Uh, so the next Asian Cup will be in Qatar in the end of 2023 again, most likely similar sort of timing. But China obviously did this, and they, they were proud to win the, the rights because they wanted to host the World Cup, right? They've made clear 2030, 2034, I think, is when they're trying to go after it. So now China has really shut themselves down um, for, for all intents and purposes, not just because of COVID, but also shutting down the borders for events and other things. Everything I see there is 
Uh, how much do you see this? And, and, and again, from your point of view, what, what do you see is happening there? Um, you know, since you also, of course, uh, deal with geopolitics uh, in your classroom here. What, what's your sort of reading on this? So I am in my, in my business school. I am uh, the program director for our global executive MBA in sport, mm-hmm. which, uh, which was scheduled to start in Shanghai last September. Um, it's currently scheduled to start in February 2023 next year. Uh, so literally on a day-by-day basis, we're trying to understand and to read the, the political situation in China um, because there is a practical operational concern, which is, you know, we need to we need to run a program, we need to find staff, we've got to get students, uh, you know, we've got to make sure that we're all safe, that we don't breach any Chinese government regulations. And so, you know, I I do live this every day. Mm, and, un- and and unfortunately, my simple answer to all of this is nobody really knows what's about to happen. So because of the opaque nature of government and governance in China, even as even as a even as a, an institution, me working for an institution that is on the front line of service provision in China, we really don't know what's going to happen next. And 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 I think for I think for Chinese sport, if you go back to 2015, 16 in particular, there was this frenzy around Chinese sport and yeah, how it was good. How how is it how it was going to be the world's biggest domestic sport economy? How there were yep. multiple sporting events going to go there? We saw obviously lots of football clubs and other assets being acquired by Chinese investors yeah. and yet it and yet it it seems now that that China has pressed the pause button on everything um in fact it's probably not the pause button it's the reset button because a lot of those investments and opportunities that that China had at its its fingertips they've yeah. chosen to step back from so i wish i could tell you something really deep and meaningful but as i said <laughs> i think you know perhaps the only deep and meaningful i can thing i can say is with china you just never ever know what's going to happen next and and that's a reflection of the political system the country has yeah for sure uh, yeah, obviously they recently had the congress again and Hopefully things are now slowly becoming clearer again. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Uh, obviously, I've I've had offices there um, and spent you know many many trips and, and days up there. Uh, and it's it is a you know complicated country. When, when China was pushing so hard into football, which was really seemed to be their sort of their favorite sport, even though uh, basketball, of course, is equally large in the country. Um, I, you know, there was always this debate: Could China one day be the, the Chinese football league be bigger than the Premier League or or bigger than European football? And I, in my mind, it, it was possible. Um, you know, if you look at the sheer size of the country, why wouldn't it one day, you know, be able to outmuscle everyone else in the process? Obviously, uh, now we know again that we're smarter, and and it isn't quite as simple. It sounds like sheer size isn't isn't all there is to it. Uh, it also needs infrastructures and the you know and the money, of course, behind it, which has clearly disappeared at the moment. So yeah, uh, well, we'll we'll keep coming back to that. And again, well, you know, let us know when you when you hear new <laughs> things about it. <laughs> I'll try. I'll the whole, try. The, the whole sporting world is, of course, somewhat stuck. Right? China was a great destination. Was from you know finding sponsors, of course, bringing you know large events there, and you know I guess let's see what we'll get see what what happens there. Um, now let let's I want to touch on a few more things. Uh, you wrote a couple of books, um, the business of FIFA's World Cup and uh, the handbook on sports marketing and you know entrepreneurship, etc. You know, share a little bit out of out of this. Uh, you know, what you know, you know, maybe some interesting stories. How you know, you know, which came out of these books and and uh, how to get them, etc. 
So if we go back right back to the the, the origins of, of when I first started to, to write about and, and teach the business of sport in business schools is is there were no resources. There literally weren't no there literally weren't any resources. And um what resources that were of, of any relevance were very often North American and, and obviously North right. Americans not North American sport in terms of you know salary caps and franchises and tailgating and all the rest of it. That 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 obviously worked for them, but it didn't necessarily work either for a British or a European audience, or for that matter. You know, later on when I started to write about Asia, it didn't work there either. And and so you know, I guess this is the, uh, the 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 kind of if you can call me a public sector entrepreneur, if if that's a, if that's there is such a phrase. You know, obviously I was working in public sector institutions in universities, but but nevertheless. You know, I could see that there was an opportunity for people to begin creating the foundations or the basis for a discipline that we now see in many business schools across the world. And, and of course, right. there are many pri private institutions offering education and training in sport as well. So it, it, I, I've always been one, you know, always been a person really looking out for the next opportunity and, and for you know, interesting things that are coming down the line and, and, and looking at the kind of big mega trends. And and I've been able to do that. And you've mentioned some of the publications uh, that I've been associated with already. Early next year, we have a a book coming out through Routledge mm -hmm. called uh, "The Geopolitical Economy of Sport: Money, right. Power, Politics, and the State." Right. And this is you know this will be the first book about the geopolitical economy of sport anywhere in the world ever. So you know, again, first mover advantage. But it's really I'd, a response. I'd like a copy. <laughs> okay, well, we'll we'll try and fix that for you, Marcus. Um, it's it's ready to account for. I mean, just to give you one example, Peng Shuai, when the Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai mm -hmm. um, made her allegations uh, against the government official on social media, and yes. before you knew it, there was a global outcry, and Thomas Bach is uh, is online talking to Peng Peng Shuai that people somebody took a yeah. photograph of, and this was just before the Beijing Olympics, Correct. and there were there were calls for the, uh, Winter Olympics. Right? Yeah, there were calls for boycotts. There were calls for sponsors to 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 make statements. Yeah. You know, a really really kind of big and complex, not just about sport, not even just about business, but also about geopolitics too. And and so, you know, this book in particular, I think is is it's important to me because. We're making decisions now in sport and we're managing in sport. We're, we're trying to be leaders in sport set against the backdrop of, of global fractiousness and, and sensitivity. And, and so you know, that book hopefully will make a contribution to, to, to people understanding the world just a little better. And and this has always been my basic philosophy is is to try and read the signs and and see what's coming and respond to it not just through publishing books but also in terms of writing shorter pieces of, of you know, shorter articles uh, for various yes. outlets and and of course you know kind of core business for me is and doing being podcasts. able to well doing <laughs> doing podcasts but also you know sitting with students and saying hey students you know what are we thinking what are, you know, what happens next because you know I guess one of the things Marcus that we've got to say is many of the people that you and I know um, and many of the people that we've worked with uh, at one time were university students and and so you know I want to make sure that I I can make a contribution to ensuring the next generation of of Leaders and managers, leaders, yes. um, you know, that they, they do have a a better understanding of the world into which they're they're going to they're going to work. Absolutely.
And, you know, to be honest, that, that is exactly my, the reason I'm doing the podcast and the philosophy behind it is that education, which, yes, you can read in books uh, and or go study if, if you have the resources and the ability to do it. Uh, but, you know, podcast is a, is a simple way to listen, learn from experts like yourself and, and others uh, who have obviously had on this here over 80 by now. Uh, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of man hours or man years of, of lessons and learning here. And obviously, it's like a mini MBA in itself. Um, not that I'm trying to compete with you or others in the, in the same space. Uh, but yeah, that is definitely the same logic behind it. And, and I'm great to, you know, see all these great uh, books, which you bring it out. And I think Rutledge is, as you mentioned, is the publisher. So I will make sure that is in the podcast notes as well. So anyone who's interested to uh, for some of the books that you have done already, and of course the one that's coming out, where to find it, uh, which I think is fantastic, uh, really interesting. Now you you mentioned, you know, you like focusing on sort of the the, the hot topics, is you know, and, and the new things, and of course one is for sure women in sports, right? Uh, and I believe you're mm-hmm. also a a trustee in in a in a in a in, a, in, a, in a, an organization there, and. So let's talk about that for a minute here. You know, we all know um, the you know uh, equality and, and all the other buzzwords which are out there, um, and in some sports, women are as right up there as as men are anyway, right? If you pick tennis or other sports, where clearly you know watching the, uh, the women players as much as the men players. Uh, in terms of prize money, there's also, you know, parity or in any But then there's other sports where clearly are, let's call them, they're somewhat male dominated. And recently you had the story about the, the motorsports series, which was uh, focused on, the, on, on women. I can't remember the name of it, I have to admit. Uh, but they obviously running in some problems and running a bit out of money. Um, you know, football now, women's football is taken on. You know, the Euro was very successful in your home country there. Um, again, Share a little bit about what your thought is on it, and where do you see women's football, women's sports going? Uh, what's are the opportunities and what's the challenges they're facing? So I, I, I used to be a director of research uh, for and a trustee of women in sport. Um, um, I no longer have these okay. positions. Um, I found this a very interesting experience, and uh, interesting because I was one man on a board of, uh, on a board who sat on a board consisting completely of women mm-hmm. and and um i felt honored to be able to do that but I, I but i also felt um that i that i was that i was able to learn a huge amount from from this situation because the kinds of issues that that this group of women was talking about um really as a man hadn't previously occurred to me and and I think what I now know is is you know it's very easy to say well women women's sport um you know should be equal to men's sport and you know I fully support equality and uh, everything that goes along with that but you know it's very easy for men to make such statements because I think that there are obstacles and hurdles that that from a very very early early age you know mm. females face that right. that men don't and and for example, you know, just to give you one example, and and uh, you know, when when I first was sat in on a conversation like this, you know, obviously when a girl reaches puberty, th- things happen to her, um, both physically and mentally. I think that that really influence you know engagement with sports and and you know issues around body image and. Um, uh, willingness to participate in sport when when faced with other alternatives and and so you know, i i think 
I do believe that you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big egalitarian in, in every respect. And, and my view is, is, is that females and males together, whether it's delivering sport, participating in sport, consuming sport, you know, there should be absolute parity in all of this. But as I say, I think really what people have to understand, particularly men, um, is, is that you know, these words can very often come easy and, and without necessarily the understanding of, of what's going to take us to equality. And, and it's not always just simply saying, well, you know, award equal prize money or you know, sure. make sure that, that, that men and women get equal attention on TV. You know, there, there are issues, challenges, obstacles that, that women, women and women's sport face that men and men's sport don't sure. and so I you know again I think my part of my role as an educator is to, to, to talk about such things when I'm with uh, with leaders and future leaders and managers yeah, um, I agree. And, and, and and that's an important part of this and I think the part we also have to somewhat and it's to remember is um, it is still driven by the market itself too right I mean we can all say we, it should be all equal but if you know the revenue streams in sports, which is TV money, sponsorship, is all the other stuff. If that is still currently very heavily skewed in a particular area, that is, as a Formula One in in in, in motorsports and the Premier League in one side, um, just because there is an equivalent version of that now for women, that doesn't mean all the dollars will flow there, right? Because you know the obviously the interest isn't there, the the sponsorship dollars therefore don't go tag along right away, right? Uh, and so I think, mm -hmm. in, in my view is always we need to be somewhat conscious of that that it still has to make some commercial sense uh, when we when we pushing these agendas, right? Everyone you know loves. I have a daughter, so yes, I love the equality side of things here. Um, and give you know girls as much of a chance as, as boys in a sense, but uh, it, it you know there is someone has to pay for it, right? And and it, you can clearly see that it isn't always as simple as it sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 what worries me is is that certainly certainly in Britain we we've got really what appears to be rapidly changing attitudes to uh, to women's sport, and and I hope that the that is genuine and authentic and consistent and sustainable mm. because I, I i just do worry a little bit that that you know it's it's kind of this bit, year's thing bit of lip service, and, yeah. and yeah and and next year you know next year's thing will come along and and, and people will will tend to forget and and so you know, I, I think there does need, a, you know, I've used the words there, kind of genuine and consistent, authentic, sustainable, and, and moving forward from here, it is about taking those you know, kind of core values or core principles and, and keeping in mind that there are obstacles that, that women and girls face that, that men, men and boys don't. And you know, really recognising that, hey, you know, come, come on, this is fifty percent of the population. You know, the men doesn't. The world just doesn't consist of men. You know, <laughs> sure. you know females can constitute fifty percent of the population. And you know, I'll let everybody into a big secret here. They have jobs and they earn money and they buy things. And and so, you know, they in terms of making women's sport pay. I think we have to realise that. You know, Women don't necessarily consume in the same way as men, and so the the kind of relationships that they have with brands, or with um, different forms of sport, and the way they consume that sport, you know, they, they, it's different to men. And so again, I think one of the things, as far as far as the industry is concerned, is we, we don't we we don't just extrapolate outwards from you know, well, this is what men do, so women probably do that as well. You know, we 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 do have to make a a, a commitment to genuinely understanding. 
women's sport and, and to delivering the kinds of outcomes that uh, are not just going to make women's sport, you know, this year's thing, but you know, ultimately you're going to make a, a, a tangible contribution yeah. to the long-term health of women's sport. Yeah, no, I agree. That's well said. Now, I, I want to touch a couple more things uh, as we sort of starting to wrap things up a bit here. And one is, um, again, how much do you look at the world of esports? Um, you know, obviously being, again, a buzzword, uh, for year for several years now, and even more, of course, during COVID, uh, you know, how much is that already sort of coming in, and you sort of trying to draw parallels in the classroom, and and you know, or how much are the students asking about it and saying, look, we we want to talk about that as well. But give me some. Yeah, sense well, there. yeah, in simple terms, um, I'm from a generation that I guess esports kind of pass passed us by certainly passed me by and and so you know i'm i'm not a gamer and, and what i'm really acutely aware of is is we've got a new generation of academics entering university education who were gamers and 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 have a pas passionate interest in in esports and so you know i can't run i can't run fast enough to compete with these people so you know there, there are great people out there across the world doing doing this you know looking at the business of, of esports but i guess from a personal standpoint as as a professional what particularly interests me and 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 I've written a little bit about is 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 how countries seek to achieve competitive advantage through mm -hmm. uh, an investment in esports and right. and you know immediately South Korea and Denmark spring to mind for me because both have um, national government policy national government strategy focused on uh, promoting and developing the esports industry. And this is not just getting lots and lots of people playing it, but inevitably uh, there, there are there is a hardware industry underpinning this, but there's also a software industry underpinning this. And, and so as a business school guy, I'm thinking, okay, esports, government strategy, money, jobs, tax revenues, contribution to gross domestic product, exports, and, and so on and so forth. And you know, we, we, we have another country, and, and we've mentioned this country already, Saudi Arabia. Yes, of course. Which, you know, the, the, the barriers to entry for Saudi Arabia, particularly if we're thinking about football and being globally successful in football, are significant. Mm. Whereas in esports, much less so. The, the barriers to entry for Saudi Arabia are lower. And so what we now see is, is that the Saudi Arabian government is committing substantial resources to, to esports, uh, not just in terms of creating venues and um, competitions in the country itself, but also investing in uh, relevant companies overseas that are that are creating games, that are you know, ma manufacturing hardware. And so you know, do, do, do I play Grand Theft Auto? Do, you know, do, do I play Battlefield? No, I don't. But what I do take a very, very keen interest in is, is for example, you know, the China's staging of League of Legends, for example, right. which, you know, in terms of economic and political significance and and the influence and and role that the government plays, is really, really important. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of the, what we already said earlier of well, let's call what it, what I was called re regular real sport or, or traditional sport. Uh, you can kind of match and mirror in, in the world of esports as well, right? Again, like you said, there's ways to use this uh, global power for it. You're building brands. Um, obviously, you mentioned Saudi buying ESL and merging it with Faceit, you know, creating this huge company on the back of it. Um, most of the other Middle a lot of the other Middle Eastern countries have their own policies as well. And again, everyone is very heavily, you know, has has, a, has policy to attract that and become the next big hub. 
China is the single largest esports uh, or or gaming country on the planet by bar none. Even though they throttled it down again, as China does in many ways um, with mm-hmm. restricting play. Uh, again, some people would have read that, um, which really surprised me. I have to admit, um, but still, the market is by as a single market by a mile the biggest, even bigger than the U.S. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it's and Asia by itself is really on the forefront of it. Uh, much more probably on the mobile side of it. You know, we own a couple of esports teams here now as well. And as you said, the entry point is just easier, right? We're not talking millions right away to start a football club, but uh, you can do it for hundreds of thousands, and you know, and build build it from there. But I've seen it now, obviously coming from the traditional world of sports marketing for 25 years, and now you know, I don't know, let's say five, six years, seven years, I've been in esports as well or gaming as well. You know, there's so much similarities, and and I love that part. I love how you know uh, you can really learn, or you know, the best things you, you the lessons you've learned from before, you can you know copy it here. So uh, yeah, it's an exciting space, and and I'm sure more of that. We'll be discussing over over the in the future here. Now, just so maybe on my last question to sort of wrap it up here um, is, you know, your thoughts on sports during COVID and now coming out of it, right? And let's hope, you know, for argument's sake, that it is truly over in twenty three and we're all finally back to normal. And some parts of the world is already the case, but we already mentioned earlier, China isn't quite there yet, right? Um, still has, you know, very strong, large restrictions and, you know, a few other countries do. What's again, how do you talk about this in the classroom and, and what is it what you see, um, how sports, you know, maybe some example of sports, which did really well reacting to it and others much less. And now, of course, how they, how they're coming out of it and, and, you know, um, the, the new normal, for sports around the world. So I think COVID for me, as we went in, uh, went into it, I, I, I wrote a couple of pieces and was interviewed several times by uh, members of the global media. And I said, well, you know, survival of the fittest. Right. Yeah, and sure. what we now see is, is some of those bigger sports in the world, bigger in terms of global reach, in terms of um, you know, numbers of fans and consumers, and in terms of the, their revenue streams. Um, obviously, there was a little bit of a bump in the road initially when they, as, as they, they tried to get used to um uh, the the realities of COVID, but subsequent to that, I mean, we, we we've seen figures recently from Manchester City. We've seen figures from you know likes of Paris Saint Germain, and and hey, the strong survived. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's further down, uh, kind of professional pyramids, uh, professional you know, structures of competitions and leagues and so forth, and and maybe some of the the less popular sports that have really struggled to to adapt and struggled to respond. And I know there are a lot of organizations out there really financially are, are, are not in great shape right now. Um, and, and so we, we do have this polarization of, I think, of the world of sport. And, and you know, we now know, obviously, football continues to be very strong. Formula One has long been a global proposition, but you know, on the back of digital technology, particularly uh, Netflix and its Drive to Survive series, we, we, we're seeing really you know, quite amazing business being done around Formula One and new markets, new consumers. Yep. Um, obviously finally captured different. the American market. Yeah, a very different operating. You know, I'm a long time, um, as we discussed right at the very start of the podcast, you know, I'm a yeah. long time observer of Formula One. And, and you know, I remember back in the old days of the 1970s and 80s where really – 
you know, the United States and Formula One didn't love each other at all, yeah. and um, you know, and 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 it was a failed venture in many ways. But right. they've got a, a, a very you know a new relationship. Um, but I, so as I say, I, I I see I see in many cases what is happening in sport is is very similar to what's happened in you know food and beverage globally. What's happened in terms of airlines globally? What's happened with you know digital services and, and in the IT sector across the globe, which is that you know, essentially industries tend to ultimately be concentrated in the hands of a, of a relatively small number. And, and mm-hmm. you know, as I say, if football you know, football is very dominant, but then if you look inside football, obviously you've got certain teams from certain countries dominant. Right. And and so they, this this form of industrial concentration is is seems to be a, a reality of economic life for for for, for the yeah. world. And and you know the question is how do you, how do you respond to that? You know, do you seek to break that industrial concentration, or you know do you let it do you let it happen? And 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 do you satisfy yourself with it? And right. you know, I think um, throughout the pandemic, the pandemic has just exacerbated that. Right. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And and. For sure, yeah. These the, the big brands always seem to get bigger, and but that's in in the real world as well, right? Uh, they, mm. You know, no one's going to ever challenge Coke and Pepsi probably in their space, mm. right? Mm. Um, you know, or very unlikely. So, uh, yeah, that's no, an interesting one. Now, that they did one actually one last question did sort of come up, in which I definitely want to touch on, and that is of course um, again sort of global recession and uh, and what's happening around the world uh, or what. You know, many believe it's going to be happening here, and uh, again, so you know, when you study, uh, you know, and then doing all this research, you're looking at, um, you know, one thing which I thought is really interesting is in the last probably at least I don't know three four months, you've seen more very large TV deals being cut around the world than I've seen in in a very long time. Right. And in an environment which the rest of the world is, is, you know, we have huge inflation. We have, you know, also the issues going on around the world. Um, you know, we have a war in, in uh, you know, in, in Russia, Ukraine there, et cetera. Um, you know, and then you see the largest, you know, NFL deal ever. You know, the, the IPL in India signed a massive new deal, you know, TV deal. Um, certain deals in Australia, which is renewed for huge sums. Um, you know, U.S. for sure stood, stood out with several other deals. MLS doing a deal with Apple, et cetera. I mean, there's just, you name it, there's a very long list of mega deals being cut for, in some cases, you know, eight, nine, ten years into the future. And others are obviously slightly shorter. Um, but it's just unique how sports um, sort of, you know, sometimes is counter cyclical to what the rest of the world is doing, right? And and how stock, you know, prices have fallen of some of the biggest companies like Facebook, et cetera. So how do you explain that to anyone? You know, what what's what would be your sort of uh, view on that from both academic and, and your own experiences? I, mean, I, I guess in very simple terms, you know, number one, sport has uh, a global power that arguably – you know, other forms of of consumption and other industrial sectors don't, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think we should take heart from 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 this as people working within the industry. Right. But as I say, I think at the same time the reflect the, the the fact that we we are getting you know big money deals linked to big money sports in in countries that have got you know, either mature sport economies or rapidly growing sport economies. 
you know, kind of bears out what I was saying earlier about this industrial polarization, because you know, it's very easy to point to these big deals in big sports in big countries and say, look, you know, sport is healthy, sport is strong. But as I say, elsewhere in the world, sure. you know, sports and leagues and competitions are struggling and, and, and those kinds of deals are not evident. Um, so, yes, sport is powerful. Yes, I think it takes... It takes brands, it takes broadcasters, it, it takes products to people and places that other industrial sectors can't. But as I say, I, I still I still do believe that we live in this very polarized world. You know, that's a, that's a characteristic generally of our world at the moment. And for every for every big money deal, I think there are lots of other deals that are far less big money and, and you know, there are many organizations that are struggling. Yep. No, I, I think, and I, I would agree with that as well. Uh, and definitely polarization, whether it's in politics or in other ways, uh, is probably the the whatever the word of 2022 and 23 here. So, um, Simon, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. I could keep going here, but uh, I'm also conscious of time. I know. Uh, I've got to. I've got to go eat. I've got to go eat some lunch because I've then got another meeting coming up. So, so cool. thank you. Thank you for thank sharing you, all this. And I really, yeah, this was great fun. And uh, hopefully, we'll do it again soon. So, uh, have a great right, day right, in Paris. Right. Thank you very much. And when you're ready to go, let me know, and I'll uh, I'll share. Definitely, we'll talk again cool. soon. Thank you, Marcus. Cheers. See you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.